Buy more, save more with a patio door at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Buy three windows, save $500. Buy six, save $1,000. Buy a dozen, save $2,000 by adding a patio door. But only through April 30th. Set your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, in for Jeff Wagner, here's Tracy Johnson. All right, good afternoon, Wisconsin. I'm Tracy Johnson. I'm back in the studio today for Jeff Wagner, who is enjoying a much-deserved vacation. I think he's coming back, right? Yeah, he's coming back. Um, I have been in from time to time with Steve Scafidi, either filling in or uh, as a guest on his program. Uh, I was here last on Wednesday, and we're going to maybe carry over a couple of issues um, from that program. Um, And we're going to take you into the weekend. We have Brewers coming up at 3 o'clock after we end the show, and should be a a great weekend. Um, In my day job, I'm the CEO for the Commercial Association of Realtors. Uh, I'm a believer in policy over politics, but I think that government should be limited but accountable. That is going to be an ongoing theme throughout the show. I'm a lifelong Wisconsinite with roots in West Dallas and in Jackson. I spent many years living right downtown, downtown Milwaukee, so I know what know what that's like. Uh, but I now live in the burbs, uh, but but work in Milwaukee. So very for lots of regional experience um, here in Wisconsin, like many of you. We have a lot of ground to cover today, um, and I believe the best part of this show is when I hear from you. So I encourage you to join the conversation at any time at 855-616-1620 on the Acunet mortgage talk and text line. I promise I want to learn. I'll be respectful if you do the same. And I know that the text line has been like the preferred mode of communication. So I will read all the texts, good, bad. Otherwise, if you agree with me, disagree with me, text, call. That's what makes this uh, show a lot of fun. So in this day and age, we are going to disagree probably on a lot of things, right? Elections, education, how to solve for poverty, healthcare, COVID mitigation. Will Will Smith keep his Oscar? I promise that's the last time we'll talk about that today unless there's breaking news. But the list goes on and on, right? Of all the things in this world that we all disagree on. But I think there are two things that we can agree on. One, that Giannis is... He's the MVP, if not of the NBA this year. He's the MVP of Milwaukee. Um, if you caught that game last night, it was just phenomenal. And over time, that win with uh, those free throw baskets, um, just tremendous. Uh, but the other thing that I think we can all agree on is that we have no sympathy for Daryl Brooks. He is the murderer in the Waukesha Parade Massacre, and he's awaiting trial and in jail right now. He wrote a note to his mother that he doesn't feel safe in jail. He's being picked on by other inmates at the facility. And they're also trying to move the trial or he's trying to move the trial because he doesn't think he will be treated fairly. Well, I agree with Jeff Wagner. He sent out a tweet last night. He said, uh, you should have thought of that. You should have thought of that before you killed and injured 70 innocent people with your car. I don't know. That is just, I guess that's what had me fired up today is just that, that we give this guy even a second thought, but it, it sounds like the, um, 
the the jail, the facility has investigated his claims, which I'm glad they did. Um, and they have found that they are unfounded. So he's going to be sitting there and awaiting his trial. Nothing more on that today, but we'll follow if there is any breaking news. So many of you were out of town on spring break last week. Many of you are shuffling back after a long week uh, today, just based on my social media feed. And just about everybody was probably in Florida or Disney World. At least that's what I'm seeing. Um, And I was in Florida just a week ago, uh, but I did not go to Disney. But I heard yesterday that they announced that they would be bringing back the beloved tradition of being able to take pictures with the characters with Mickey Mouse, Daffy Duck, what have you. Um, for the last two years, because of COVID, you'd had to keep that social distancing. And I have to admit, that is one of the reasons that I did not go to the park. There were just too many little things that were, I don't know, I just, I don't want to deal with it. I mean, how silly is a picture of, you know, your kids with Mickey Mouse standing six feet behind? Or it's, it's like seeing Santa, right, in the plexiglass. It's just... I just didn't want to deal with it. But anyway, as of April 18th, not only will you be able to fly to Florida without a mask, allegedly, you will be able to hug Mickey Mouse um, at Disney. But that is not the real reason I wanted to talk about Disney today. There is an all-out war brewing with Disney corporate and the state of Florida. And I think Disney is is going to lose this one, namely Governor Ron DeSantis, who is very, very beloved in Florida. Um, I know that there are people in Wisconsin who think that he's a bit brash and an attention seeker. And if you looked at his track record of filing lawsuits against the Biden administration or people who disagree with him, I yeah, you're probably right. He stands up for his people in Florida. Wouldn't it be great to to have a governor that everyone felt a sense of pride in like that? So, you know, in Florida, you'd have to be living under a rock if you didn't know about the controversial legislation called the Parental Bill of Rights, which some are coining the don't say gay bill, but I mean, I don't want to debate the merits of the bill, but it includes language prohibiting the teacher teaching of gender identity of to any student who is under eight years of age in a public school. And Ron DeSantis signed this law, signed this into law this week. So Disney, while they didn't come out initially with a statement against the bill, there was some brewing of discontention amongst the staff. And they had staged a walkout. They had staged a protest, albeit it was a small amount of people, because if you're following any of the polls, People do support this legislation. This isn't just about, you know, what the headlines and the news say it's about. There's a lot of other information out there. And it's really about, you know, parental rights um, when it comes to knowing about what their their kids are learning in the schools. Well, anyway, Ron DeSantos is, is, is now threatening to take away some of the privileges that Disney has had over the last several years in how they operate. It's called the Reedy Creek Improvement Act. So these execs are going back and forth, right? And they're saying, you know, they're they're now saying that this is hate speech. They're saying that we will not rest until this legislation is repealed. And so the governor of Florida is saying, okay, you know what? I think you, I think you have too much power here. We're going to take a look at some of these special privileges that you have in our state 
And we're going to just take a take a look at this. So this Reedy, Reedy Creek Improvement Act basically allows Disney World in Florida the ability to to oversee its own zoning. This is a massive development with tons and tons of structures and you know different roads and 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 they need to have some flexibility in where they're able to, you know, build these build these structures and how they all work together. And so the state of Florida basically allowed them to govern themselves so that they could have more ease in creating these different um you know different facilities for their for their for their uh, business. So he's threatening to take this away. Now, I don't know if they can take it away or not, but it, it makes me think about Disney. And did they make the right call here? Should these companies, these huge public companies, be coming out in support or in opposition of these social issues? I mean, whether I agree with it or not, I don't want to see this fighting. I don't want to see this this uh, going back and forth i just want to go to disney world and i just want to have a good time i don't want to deal with the politics i don't want to know what the ceo thinks of this bill or this piece of legislation or that so what is the role of public companies in some of these social issues we saw this with penzies for example and i actually think that was very extreme the ceo of penzies coming straight out against republicans and anyone who was a republican calling them names specifically a racist but what is the role did disney do the right thing 855-616-1620 on the acunet mortgage text talk and text line are these public companies making the right decision, or, or are they evaluating this and saying this is good for my company. I think I'm going to get more people to support my view that I'm going to lose. And is this a smart decision? 855-616-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Your reaction when we come back. It's Disney World against the rest of the world, I guess is how we want to say it. Uh, I'm Tracy Johnson and for Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. We're talking about this brewing battle between Governor Ron DeSantos in Florida and Disney World. Uh, Disney World exec said they will not rest until the parental bill of rights law that was just signed by Governor Ron DeSantis was signed into law earlier this week. They will not rest until that law is repealed. It makes me think about corporate's role in some of these social issues. What are they thinking about when they're making these decisions? We have a couple of great calls. Uh, we're going to start with Scott in Greendale. What do you think? Thank you so much. I love you for bringing up this topic because here's the deal. I married into a Disney family. We're not DVC members, or vacation club members for those of you that know, but <laughs> we go there a lot and I'm about ready to go through two weeks in the parks with my three kids in June. Here's the deal. As much as I am a conservative, and I've always known that Disney's a little bit more of a liberal corporation, I'm pretty moderate, right? I'm, I'm open. Hey, mm-hmm. whatever, you know, your, your social gender that you identify with this or that or whatever, fine. But keep it out of my way, because I'm going there for entertainment purposes. If it weren't for the fact that I'll, you know, my, uh, Melissa, excuse me, my wife's brother is coming and her parents are coming, honestly, my wife and I probably would have canceled this trip because we are so disgusted because here's the deal. When we go there, we want to escape. We just, we want to forget about our troubles here at home. We want to forget about our troubles in the world. We just want to, 
we just want to go to Fantasyland, right? And watch the kids smile, even if it is with a mouse. <laughs> and it's, it's really starting to affect the ability to be able to do that. So I wish companies, whether they be standing up for issues on the right or the left, right? I just wish that they would stay out of it. Scott, thanks so much for the call. I, I mean, I think Scott makes such a, a good point. We, we're not going to Disney World because we care that they support gay issues or non-gay issues or education or social reform. We just want to have a good time. And I would bet if you're going for two weeks, Scott, you are spending a fair amount of coin um, heading down to Florida. And so, you know, companies, I think we have a, a texter from the 414 that's saying it's it's freedom of speech. Disney has a right to speak out in disagreement of the new law. Okay, fine. You have that right. But then people like Scott and people like me, we have the right to not go there. And I guess if that's the calculation that the company has made, then that's the company that the calculation has made. But I think there is more coming down the pike for this company from the state of Florida and Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, Lamar, you're on uh, WTMJ calling from Orlando. What do you think? Yes. Um, so I'm a big Disney guy, but I'll be honest, um, I don't really care which way companies go politically. I don't, I don't like that they're involved in politics, but we have decided through, you know, much legislation that we're okay with this, right? So companies, first of all, Ron DeSantis is taking in a company that, a company that brings in the overall majority of the sales tax revenue that allows people like me, and thank you, Scott, for visiting, to not pay a state income tax because of people like Scott coming down here. And visiting, and also I would like to say that even though Disney is very is deciding to be active politically, there's nothing political in their parks. It's zero. You don't see anything political signs. There was no Black Lives Matter signs during the whole Black Lives Matter thing. Which, being an African American, I didn't like that companies even did that because I wish that companies would be apolitical. But we know they are. But again, we decided we were going to give them. And yes, it is freedom of speech. And unfortunately, because we also decided that money is free speech, and these companies have ridiculous amounts of money. They have, they can, and have the money and will to enter, in, you know, insert themselves into these social arguments, which I wish, as the previous caller, they didn't get involved with. But let's be honest, and I will. This is my last piece. I don't. Even though we we don't like it, the reality is, Disney is so big. How do you protest? Just the, you can't just protest the parks. They own Marvel. They own mm-hmm. ESPN and ABC and all these other companies that they only have so much power that we gave them. It's, I feel like it's, it's pointless at this point to, to throw your hands up. I appreciate, in principle, that the governor is pushing back, but at the same time, he's taking on a fight. I don't, I don't think he'll win. That's my personal opinion. I think they're too big. Um, Lamar, thanks so much for the call. I, I mean, what an interesting perspective. And I think Lamar makes an excellent point about just the, the sheer amount of money that a company like Disney brings to the state of Florida and, and California, for that matter. And that... You know, if, if they stand up to this giant, what's to say that Disney isn't just going to say, you know what, we shut down during COVID. We, we can shut down now because we are going to take a stand. And, you know, Lamar, I see you're still on the line. Um, did you by chance happen to work at Disney? No, no, I'm actually a former Wisconsin. That's why I became a fan of the show, and I still listen. Even I moved back down, moved down here. Um, I've just, I'm a, just, I've been a Disney fan forever. I never worked there, um, but I do hold an annual pass. I have since I moved down here, um, and I'm a big, big fan of what Disney does because they do entertain, and I will give them credit. When you're at Disney, they know how to 
their customer service is amazing. They, it's a, it's a full, fully engulfing experience that you, it's not political. You don't, they, and they don't, they don't allow that either at their parks. You can't go there with the political shirts on, yep. making political stands. In fact, somebody got kicked out of Disney for doing that. Um, I want to say before COVID. So they're big on that to make sure that when you're there, it's the family experience and you're away from all that other, you know, noise and chaos. Um, but they're, I mean, they do, they do it well, which is why when people say I'm going to protest this company and that company, let's be honest. These companies that are that big got that big because they do their business well. Even though we hate the politics, they do business well, you know, and, yeah. and that's just the reality. And unfortunately, again, Disney is extraordinarily big, and this is a fight. They're bigger than Florida. <laughs> and I don't think DeSantis is going to win this one, unfortunately. Well, Lamar, thanks you know? for so the call. That's co- just my opinion. Thank you so much for the call. I think uh, excellent perspective. Uh, a lot of people weigh- weighing in on the text line. We have a couple more callers, I, a couple more angles that I don't think we've quite quite hit here yet um, about what 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 is corporate's role in some of these social issues i think lamar did a tremendous job defending the fact that disney really isn't a political place that a lot of this was inspired and transpired because you have some employees who are very passionate about this issue so more when we come back if you want to weigh in 855-616-1620 on the acunet mortgage talk and text line i am tracy johnson in for jeff wagner Welcome back on WTMJ. I'm Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner on this, I don't know, spring-like afternoon, April Fool's. I'm not big into April Fool's. I just, I feel like my whole life is kind of an April Fool's joke sometimes. Um, But we were talking about uh, the controversy in Florida there seems to be a lot of controversy in Florida, maybe because the focus on spring break and all of that. But, you know, Disney weighing in on the parental bill of rights that was signed into legislation earlier this week by Governor Ron DeSantis. Um, it, it really spurred, I think, a really multidimensional conversation about what is a company's role in these social issues or some of these political issues. And, you know, it's it's no secret these things have been going on for a very long time. All of these big companies are contributing to politicians on both sides of the aisle, contributing more um, in cases where that politician is obviously going to support their business uh, from time to time on all the various different levels. And so, you know, the the issue of you know, should these companies be taking a stance? And, you know, when you look at this another way, I think there's a generational component to this because younger people, Generation Z, those are like 25 and under, are actually saying that they want to work for companies that have a position on certain issues. Many times it's social issues, climate issues. They want to work for a company whose values they understand. And not only whose values they understand, but whose values they agree with and they align with. And that's all part of the, you know, building that culture, building that uh, compatibility, building um, that loyalty, you know, into the future. And I think that's maybe where Disney kind of got a little off course is they're they're saying okay this is not what we do we don't take stances on these issues but we have employees who are asking us to do so and so i think if you're going to do it you do it and if you're not going to do it just stay out of it focus on who you are as a brand focused on who you are as a company and focus on what your what your client 
wants and what's let's just face it what's going to make you money so I, I I think this is an evolving issue, but I do think that more and more, as we have younger people in the workforce, companies are going to be faced with this question um, more and more as we go down the line. So we just heard uh, Jane Matanera, I think it is breaking news um, about the Amazon facility that just voted to to unionize Amazon. We all know Amazon. Some of you probably have an Amazon truck right outside your your door right now. But Amazon workers in New York voted to form the the, the company's first union. So there was a vote that was taken over the last two months in two facilities, one in Alabama, one in Staten Island, New York. And, you know, they were basically asking for the ability to form a union. They want to make more money. They want better work conditions. They want better benefits to be working in this Amazon facility, right? That's why people unionize is because they want more. Even in this day and age when there there are 11.3 million jobs open, they don't go look for another job. They want to change the, the culture and the work environment that they're in right now. So Amazon just formed its first union. So what does this mean for the 1.1 million Amazon employees across the country? Is this going to be a a thing? Did they just create a blueprint? Now, in Alabama, this was not the first time that the company attempted unionization. Last year, they attempted to unionize. And the way that they do this is they collect votes from, from the employees. And it's like a campaign, like a political campaign. So... They're advocating to their workers to 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 vote for unionization. And the company is supposed to stay out of it. They're supposed to stay neutral and not try to try to fight back from a campaign standpoint. But rather what they did is they started to offer more competitive benefits. They increased wages. You know, they did all the things that the employees were asking for as part of their what whatever negotiations and collective bargaining they'll enter into um, as part of the union. But that uh, that came down the pike. And it's interesting when you start to look at the landscape, what's happening with some of these larger corporations? It's no secret that big companies are getting bigger. When with with COVID-19 and the shutdowns, you know, economies of scale are the way that these companies are going to survive. You saw big companies getting bigger. You saw small companies just getting gobbled up or going away. They just couldn't survive. They didn't have the economies of scale. Even in Milwaukee, just uh, last week, Collectivo Coffee and its employees wanted to unionize. They wanted better working conditions. They wanted more money. They wanted more benefits. And so... As much as the ownership and the company can do to satisfy these employees, it just wasn't enough. And it just it's just a very interesting trend that begs the question, who has the power here? And we contemplated this on Wednesday in a different context, not the union formation context, but rather the work from home context. But I want to stick with the union, this union theme here. Late in 2021, A number of union workers from John Deere and Kellogg's and a number of other companies who are unionized went on strike 
They wanted more money. They wanted better working conditions. All the things that a union is designed to to advocate for. So these workers walked out. They stopped production and they forced corporate to meet their demands. And so you're seeing, I feel like you're seeing more and more of this, even though on the whole, union numbers are dropping. There's all kinds of different unions, and I I actually don't feel qualified to explain all the different types, but there's trade unions, you've got the public sector unions, but you've got these company, these corporate unions, and you're seeing this trend. You had Starbucks. Starbucks is is creating a blueprint to create these unions. So So who's got the power? Is this going to be a trend moving forward? So instead of going and looking for a different job in a different company, you're going to try to change the company that you work within by forming a union, by advocating and sometimes agitating for better benefits or different benefits or the benefits that you want to see, the pay you want to see, the work environment that you want to be a part of. So is this is this what we're going to be seeing going forward? Who's got the power here? Is it the employer or the employee? How long is this going to last? 855-616-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Are we going to see more of this? Is there going to be unionization of all the different Starbucks? And what does that mean? What does that mean? Is that a good thing? I mean, I kind of presuppose this, that this is not a bad thing or a good thing. It, it resembles change. It remember, resembles a, sh- a shifting environment in the relationship between employers and, and employees. And I'm not sure it's in a forward moving direction. Seems a little backwards to me. 855-616-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Your reaction when we come back. I'm Tracy Johnson on WTMJ. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Do employers or employees have the power? This in light of the recent just breaking Um, The decision by one of the Amazon facilities in New York voting to unionize. Who has the power? I got an answer. In the long run, the employer is going to win this game. Here's the deal. When a company unionizes, they are asking for more money. They have created, I believe, what what they've created is uh, a hostile type of environment and if the employee is working there and that's what they feel then they should they should leave right and it's up to the employer to try to keep them there when they have asked to unionize i believe that they have cast a you know a shot across the bow and they've said you know what we can't deal with you in a normal circumstance We're, we need to to get together and we need to uh, fight against the oppressive employer I don't get the sense that employers are out there trying to manipulate and take advantage of their employees. They understand how competitive this work environment is, especially with 11.3 million jobs that are open and only 3.6% unemployment. I, I, I feel like this is unnecessary. 
This is unnecessary, but I think people are taking advantage. And, and I have people weighing in on the talk and text line who are saying, Jeff Bezos makes way too much money. Well, whose fault is that? If you really think that way, I challenge you to stop buying things from Amazon. Good luck. But the reason that I think the employers have the upper hand here is that all of these jobs, these are low-skill jobs. And I'm sorry if anybody is, is working there. These are, these are jobs that robots can do, and these are jobs that robots will do. Whether you have a union or not, these are jobs that, that are going to be automated. The production of robots and automation technology has quadrupled in the last 12 months, not only because we had the COVID shutdowns and people couldn't come to work or people wouldn't come to work, but employers knew that they were going to have to find a solution. And now they're seeing this play out. Even at these coffee shops, I know it's nice to go get your drink from a barista and have somebody write your name on the cup, but this can all be automated. There's a self-serve coffee shop in Waukesha right now. We are not going to need people or as many people doing this work in the future. And the more hostility there is between employers and employees, the less necessary they will become. So this, you know, I, I think in the long run, as much as I don't like to say it, I think that the employers and the big companies that can choose to automate are going to win this battle. And I'm not saying that employees shouldn't have good working environment. That's not what I'm saying at all. And I'm not saying that employees should be treated fairly. And it's it's terrible that people think they need to form a union, which is, in my mind, I feel like that is just, it, it's like a last resort. It should be a last resort especially when you have an established company like an Amazon or a Starbucks. It just seems very combative to me. And so, you know, as much as, as I hate to say it, I think the employer is going to win this battle. And while you might have some short-term success with these union formation and, uh, you know, let's also just be really honest about this. This is not going to decrease prices. You increase the needs of the employees. You increase the labor cost. This is going to increase the cost of goods to the consumer. That's exactly what worries me, Tracy, is as someone who doesn't work for Amazon but is a customer of Amazon's, when you hear unionization, I just see dollar signs, and that's going to cost the company money. Is that going to get passed off on me, the consumer? It will. Yeah, the company's not just going to take less profits. That's not in their best interest. So I hear unionization, and as someone who uses Amazon, I think my stuff's going to cost more money now. It will. That Amazon Prime is already, I mean, maybe it's because of inflation, but it's no longer $99. It's something like 119 I have no idea. But, um, you know, it, and, it, and I do think, you know, in closing, this, we're going to see more of this. And I understand that union participation is at its lowest rate. And very smart caller from the 414, thank you for that. I know that it's at its lowest rate of participation, but there seems to be a little bit of a trend. And when you have the country's second largest employer, Amazon, kind of go down this path, it is very troubling and it makes you think.
you know, what does this mean for my bottom line? What does this mean for the employees? More when we come back. If you want to weigh in, 855-616-1620 on the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It's 1252. I'm Tracy Johnson. In for Jeff Wagner. 1255 on WTMJ at one o'clock in less than five minutes from our breaking news center. We're going to have new information and details about acting Mayor Cavalier Johnson's brother uh, being in police custody. Uh, More information in just a few minutes. But we're going to close up this segment discussing the future of unionization. I've got some really great texts and I, I really appreciate the insight. Yes, I am speaking from the employer's perspective. Um, Amazon unionizing, I think, is is not a good thing. Uh, I have somebody weighing in from the 414 who's in HR, and they say, I was always taught to treat your employees well, and they will not want to unionize. You know, and and I I get that. Treat your employees well, and they won't want to unionize. What happened here that we created this uproar? And now what are we going to see as it it moves forward in the future? Also, texter from the 920, uh, Amazon Prime is now $139. Thank you for that that detail. I uh, had that screwed up there. Um, But, you know, yes, I am speaking from an employer's perspective. I, I actually did work for a, a, a union at one time, um, and it wasn't a, a bad environment. I'm not ripping on unions in any way, shape, or form. But what I'm suggesting is that, you know, perhaps there does need to be better lines of communication, especially as these companies are getting bigger and bigger. All of these companies that we're talking about that are entering into these talks are companies that are experiencing tremendous growth. And, you know, you're talking about Amazon, you're talking about Starbucks, Colectivo may be a different story, but, you know, all companies that are experiencing this growth. And I I actually find it surprising that with so many job openings, so many job openings, that employees in some of these, you know, manufacturing companies, these light manufacturing or uh, distribution centers are choosing to try to change the environment in which they work rather than looking for another job. I'm not advocating for people to job hop. I guess it's just, it's surprising to me. And I actually don't think it's it's a good thing for the employee moving forward. And especially when you think about the types of jobs that these are, these are, I mean, at this point, many of them are family sustaining jobs. Many of them are not, but you've got to consider the type of work you have to consider the other opportunities that are out there. Just uh, another headline that's, that talks about airline workers advocating for better pay. The people who push the wheelchairs up the ramp, they're advocating for better pay. And I get that. But, you know, I think a lot of that has to happen internally. And it happen has to happen through the lines of communication. And at the end of the day, I think this friction, I think this consternation, I think it doesn't end well in mass for these large scale, for the employees in some of these large scale employers. So we have a big story, uh, breaking news that will be coming up in the news after the break, uh, after one o'clock here. Um, Acting Mayor Cavalier Johnson's brother, uh, some updates, um, some new information about his brother being in police custody. We will have that uh, during the one o'clock breaking news. I am Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 
Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, in for Jeff Wagner, here's Tracy Johnson. Welcome back, Wisconsin, on this gray April 1st day. April 1st. Man, where did this first quarter go, right? All right, so we have a lot more to get to uh, for the next two hours, and then we have Brewers. Brewers and the Cubs. How great is that? That just feels right, although it's it's still a preseason game. Um, We'll be carrying that on WTMJ at 3 o'clock this afternoon. So today is a big day in Wisconsin, uh, not just because it's uh, April Fool's Day, for those of you who (laughs) are really into that, Um, but it is, for many, it is the last day of in-person absentee voting for the spring primary election. So election day is April 5th, which is Tuesday. So we've got a couple of days. There's no early voting on uh, over the weekend uh, for most municipalities. I believe the city of Milwaukee does have some options, but I think most places it's today is the last day. So if you're out of town next week, or if you are planning to in-person absentee vote, today is the last day for you to be able to do that. And there are so many important local races. This is a nonpartisan primary election. Uh, but a lot of people are digging deep into these very, very important local issues. Um, I talked at length about this on Wednesday during the program uh, about not only the the importance of these local elections, but how these local elections in certain communities, whether you live there or not, they impact you. The mayoral election in Milwaukee, for example, you've got a, a very distinct choice, those of you who live and vote in Milwaukee, between acting incumbent Mayor Cavalier Johnson and former Alderman Bob Donovan. They have very distinct platforms. In fact, there was an article in the Business Journal that went through a number of the candidates' positions on business issues, whether it be the use of tax increment financing, whether it be uh, how they would plan to crack down on crime, which is the number one issue in our state right now, in the country, I would argue, for businesses, for taxpayers, for voters. This is the top issue and the way that this election goes will not only impact milwaukee but it will impact surrounding communities especially as we talk about spillover as it relates to crime also another regional ballot issue that has wide-reaching impact is the district two circuit court race between incumbent Lori cornbaum and mary lazar i encourage voters to do your homework on these two candidates the incumbent uh lori cornbaum uh for district two court of appeals she was appointed by governor tony evers she spent some time with district attorney john chisholm uh, and mary lazar um who has been working in waukesha county um is running against her so pay attention do your homework on this and think about What are the implications? Many of those in this listening audience um, will have that on their ballot. A number of referendums we talked through, including a huge one in the city of West Dallas. That's 
really interesting ballot measure. Um, it's a binding referendum uh, that the school board has approved the language for $150 million to combine and upgrade uh, two schools, Nathan Hale and West Dallas, uh, West Milwaukee High School. So that's a big deal. We're going to see see how that goes. A lot of times these referendum ballot issues draw out the voters because, frankly, there's a ton of money being put behind the advocacy around the projects and the improvements that uh, and the money that would be spent around these um these referendums. And then, of course, a lot of school board races. We've seen a ton of money spent on these school board races. And I I want the listeners who don't have kids in these districts, in these schools, to really pay attention because these are nonpartisan races. And while some people might contest that there's, and there is, there is party money being spent in some of these races. There's no denying it. We've heard it up and down uh, the communities, you know, whether it's the Republican Party, whether it's uh, Democrat Party, they are getting involved in some of these races. And even though it's nonpartisan, I want people to do their homework. And I've been impressed. I, I live in a community where we have a school board race happening uh, in, in Mequon Thienesville. And I, I'm working with a candidate. I have to actually give her a shout out. Miss Jill Cromie. She's running for school board in Mequon. And she's killing it. Knocking on doors, dropping literature, answering emails, taking the time to do the hard work of not just campaigning, but listening to voters, doing their homework, responding. These candidates, they're doing the job before they've been elected by the voters. They're, they're proving to you. Look at the ones who are proving to you that they can do the job before you make that vote. So I just, I have to commend these candidates and I have to commend the voters. And I have to say, do your homework because these elections matter. Even if you don't have kids in the district, this affects your property values. This affects your property taxes. This affects your community's future. So these are very, very important elections up and down the ballot. You know, and I, and, and I want to thank any candidate who's taking the time to run because Lord knows I would not do this. Um, and I talk to a lot of my friends. I, I work with a lot of friends who pay a lot of attention to these political races. And we say, we, we just, I don't have the skin to do it. I just don't have the skin, so I admire the the dedication. And I want to hear from you if you have run for office. I'm not looking for calls from candidates, but I'm looking for calls from people who have run for office. And what made you do that? For one, uh, on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 855-616-1620. On the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, what made you run for office? What made you do it? Especially these local elections where there's rarely any compensation for the job that you do. Often these meetings are three hours, twice a month. This is, I, I see this as, as thankless work, but you got to get the gratification. 855-616-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text. Like, have you run for office, local, statewide, or otherwise. Your reaction, your calls, your input when we come back.
It's 118 on WTMJ. Oh, it's the last day of in-person absentee early voting in the state of Wisconsin for the very important spring election. I know it's another Tuesday, another election. Talking through just the grit that these candidates, any candidate running for any position um, in the state of Wisconsin, I admire you. Hey, I even admire you if I don't agree with you because you are doing something that 99.99% of the population won't do. You know what? We like to sit around and complain about all the things that we don't like, but then we don't run for office. We don't write a check. We don't get out there and drop literature in people's mailboxes. I know I work on several campaigns and I'm, you know, I'm impressed with the voters and the amount of attention they pay to the issues. But people are really busy and they don't have or sometimes make the time. But I got to give the kudos to the people who, you know, will get out there, who will do the work. Um, my my friend uh, Pat Cresson, Elm Grove trustee, running on the ballot. Now, this is a guy with a full-time job, right? Full-time job. He's got a family. You got kids. And you're running for a position in Elm Grove to better your community. And I know this this gentleman personally, and I know that... In this position, you need a skill set. You need to understand how the world works. You need to understand business. You need to understand real estate. Many of these communities are undergoing redevelopment plans. They're undergoing redevelopment proposals. You need people in these positions who understand how the world works, how to get the job done. And unfortunately, I think we've created an environment in this election environment where people either don't make the time because they don't have they don't have the time. They have other priorities or they just don't think that they have the chops for it. And frankly, I am in that boat. And I think in any of these elected positions, you have to have a a, a thick skin because you're going to get attacked. I just think that that is the political world, the political environment these days, especially when there's a contested election. And and it's sad. It's sad to say. And I see it on Facebook. I see it on social media. That's just the way this world works. Instead of discussing the issues in person, face to face, like adults, it seems to be this this infighting of ideas. But, you know, as we look at these upcoming elections and as we you know look up and down the ballot and think about all the time that these people put into these elections, into these races, um, you know, win or lose. You know, I think the hope is that these people will continue to put their service forward. They will continue to do that. Uh, earlier this week, Steve Scafidi had on his show a number of mayors. I believe most of those mayors were part-time. Big cities like Wauwatosa, big cities like West Allis. These are these are not huge full-time positions in many cases. And these people are doing the work. These are people are in direct contact with the constituents, listening to constituents say my my 
sidewalk outside my house wasn't shoveled they're saying the garbage wasn't picked up you know this these are the calls that these elected leaders choose choose to dedicate their lives to and i have to commend them i have to commend them and i also want to comment on on this proposal that gubernatorial candidate kevin nicholson put forth uh, you know it, it's about making sure that some of these elected positions are are part-time and now i can't speak for what it takes um you know as a lawmaker uh, in Madison and the amount of time that it takes to do that job but to really think about these elected positions especially at that level and what should the qualifications be and should they have to have another position should they have to have this business experience do you have to prove that you understand how to read a P&L how to read a balance sheet in order to be making these decisions for the rest of the state and the way that these dollars are spent. I'm not sure it's the worst idea to, to, to just think about this in conversation. So kudos to all of you who are running for office right now. You are doing something that 99% of the population wouldn't even consider. I am Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Welcome back to WTMJ. It is 1.33. I'm Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner on this Friday afternoon. So last month was Women's History Month. We are now in April. March was Women's History Month. And during Women's History Month is a day called Pay Equity Day. All right. Pay Equity Day. This day is the day that symbolizes how far into the year women must work to earn what men earned in the previous year. So to this year in 2022, it was March 15th. It was March 15th. Equal Pay Day was originated by the National Committee on Pay Equity in 1996 as a public awareness event to illustrate the gap between men's and women's wages. Uh, it, uh, like I said, it portrays the, that women must work more to make the same amount of money as a man in the same job. All right. I am not a feminist and I struggle with some of these concepts broadly. All right. I, I struggle with some of these days and some of these, you know, women pay equity. I, I just because there's more to it. There's more to it when we're talking about equity, all right? But I appreciate, all right? I can appreciate anyone with the passion around the issue. And frankly, I probably have benefited from the efforts of women who have come before me, uh, and I am grateful. But I am not into the the activism. And I think there, that we're missing some of the other surrounding issues when it comes to pay equity, Nevertheless, the day where men and women make the same amount in the eyes of researchers may be sooner than we think. There was a recent 
set of research from Pew Research Center analysis of the Census Bureau data found that nationally the median women that median women under 30 who works full time earns 93% of what her male peers make. Okay. Yet in in 22 of the 250 U.S. metropolitan areas, young women now make between 100% and 120% of what their male counterparts earn. A small but positive sign the gender pay gap may be slowly narrowing. That's likely a result, say experts, of a combination of factors from gains in higher education and more employer pay audits to increased pay equity laws and more demands from those younger workers. All right. Equity programs. Okay. Do they work? Do they work? Are we seeing the results of equity programs? I argue I argue that equity measures, particularly when it comes to pay, and I think other equity measures, are actually going to be more harmful in the end than beneficial. And I'll explain when we come back. Tracy Johnson on WTMJ. Welcome back to WTMJ. Talking about equity. And pay equity. March 15th uh, marked Pay Equity Day in the United States of America. I am going to argue why equity programs, though, lead to more harm than good. And I'd love to share a text from the 414. He says, Equal Pay Day. Stop promoting the liberal feminist agenda. Also, go make me a sandwich. (laughs) That's lovely. When you sit in the big chair and you say the big things, this is how people react. At the top of the show, I said, I will respect you, but please don't ask me to make a sandwich. I hope that's a joke. I'm I'm sure. But it's very funny to text and, you know, be anti whatever you just said and then insult you in the next breath. Like <laughs> I don't think that's going to get across the way you want it to. <laughs> I can take it, though, because what it says to me is that somebody just heard me say pay equity day and then they shut down. Right. Right. Because what I'm saying is that I think this is not going to be a thing anymore. And if we keep pushing these equity programs, we're going to go backwards. You didn't promote it. You acknowledged its existence. (laughs) Well, and let me just explain why I believe that some of these programs are actually going to do more harm than good. And it spurs from a piece of legislation that was passed into law in the great state of Mississippi. It it is the last state in the nation, might I add, not to have an equal pay law or a non-discrimination statute that impacts employment. I found this really hard to believe that that 49 states actually have laws on the books that say we need to pay people people. Fairly, we have to have pay pay equity laws. Maybe I'm just in that age bracket where I just assume that if you do good work and you make the right moves and you take advantage of the opportunities that that you create for yourself, that you will do well. So in Mississippi, the state legislature voted to pass a bill that awaits the governor's signature that would require employers to offer equal pay 
for equal work, ending years of efforts to pass pay equity measure in the state. And while it might seem like a moment for advocates to celebrate, some are alarmed by some of the provisions in the bill. And what this exposes to me is where some of these programs are going to fall off the rails. In the final bill, including one that specifically lists applicants' continuous employment, negotiation attempts, and salary history as factors for employers that they might be able to consider when they're justifying a pay pay gap. All of these things, I believe, move this measure in the opposite direction. Equal pay for equal work. Why, why do we need laws about this? I, I think that that's the first thing that stuns me, and I understand that we have them. But when you start to try to justify all of these equity measures and checking all of these boxes, you need to be able to justify your decision. And so what this bill is illustrating is all kinds of further details that, again, talk about, you know, I am paying you less because you didn't work for the last three years. Like, I might not agree with it, but these are all things that are now going to be taken into consideration. What happens if you were out with a sick family member? What if you were out raising a family? These are all the unsaid reasons why I believe that a woman might not make as much as a man. Perhaps they haven't worked in the workforce as long. Some professions lend themselves to this more than others. But some of them, like sales, for example, it should be based on what you produce. And I get it. There's all kinds of different scenarios scenarios to consider here. But I think this type of legislation is actually a step backwards. And I've heard of other cities that are asking for transparency, including New York City, that's looking to pass legislation that is masking itself as a transparency bill, but I believe is is creating more opportunity for employers to justify pay differences based on anything based on gender, based on anything, I mean, you name it. I mean, this is the day and age that we live in. And when you start to look at what are those measurables and you start to say, this is my justification, you gotta be careful what you wish for. And I think a lot of these measures, a lot of these measures are going to do more harm than good in the end. And yeah, I guess, yeah, let's celebrate that that women in 22 of the 250 U.S. metropolitan areas are making more than men now. So now what? So now what? Great. Do we need these laws on the books anymore? Are we going to have other other laws on the books that, that, that creep into this equation? 855-616-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Do we need to drop all of these these equity measures? Can we be done with this conversation as a community, as a society, or or do we need to continue to press on? 855-616-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Your reaction, your comments, when we come back. Station.
Welcome, bla- welcome back. Glad to have you with us on this Friday afternoon discussing this legislation out of Mississippi. Pay equity legislation that I believe takes this whole discussion about pay equity backwards um, because it is is looking at all of these different measures. And, and I might add, and this was like the shocking thing that I learned in, in my show prep, is that Mississippi is the last state in the, the union in the, in the United States to have adopted equal pay law or non-discrimination statute, which I found very fascinating. But what they're proposing is not just about equal pay. What they're proposing in the final bill language is more detail to be specified and I argue leveraged to justify paying women or men for that matter we had a texter from the 847 or men for that matter differently are we spending too much time on checking boxes here or do we really need this is this what it takes to move our society forward in this whole conversation about gender, and, and I'm getting a ton of great feedback. I mean, girl power, the women who are saying, I work in a male-dominated industry, I don't think about this. I think about results. I think about doing the job. I think about taking the opportunities that are presented to me in the workplace. If you rely on government and these programs and these boxes that need to be checked in order for you to have success in your future then we've got a we've got a broad problem here and i think it's about taking that individual responsibility i'm also getting a lot of funny fe- i hope it's funny from the 262 here i'm not making you a sandwich 6 minutes in a break is not enough time to make you a sandwich <laughs> you know it, this is a, a serious issue and i don't mean to make light of it um, but one of the other factors here that that I actually thought long and hard about when we talk about women in the in the workplace is, you know, why we're in the position where we're in today, where, where we do have an opportunity to say that women are making as much as men in many of these metropolitan areas. And I think one of the reasons is because women are deciding to wait longer to to have families. Right. And so they aren't out of the workforce in their formidable years, in their 20s and their early 30s. And while this is maybe a good thing, can be seen as a good thing for the gender movement, I think it's kind of sad sometimes when you start peeling back the layers and talking to these young people about the future. And some of them are actually saying, you know what, I'm not having kids because this is a really, really messed up place. This is a really, really scary place to bring in another human being. And so they're making that decision. So, so yeah, there, there are consequences to this movement. And we're seeing the results maybe in some of these, these, these pay equity factors. I'm just trying to think through, you know, where some of this is, is coming from. Lots of great feedback um, on the talk and text line. I think, you know, when you hit a nerve, when you get a lot of great feedback. So um, I hope this gives you something to think about, um, you know, as we move down the line. But I contend that in the long run and even the mid run, that some of these programs, these, these programs, these equity programs are actually going to take us backward 
rather than propel us forward. Um, I wanted to also bring switching gears. This is a this is a hard pivot here um, to a topic um, that has been covered nationally. That is it's actually a very tragic story um, out of Florida. I got a lot of Florida news here today. Um, but this is a story that happened last week, and it actually happened while I was not only in Florida, but in very, very close proximity to where this accident happened. Uh, there was a ride um, in Orlando, Florida, called the Free Fall Drop Tower that takes riders up nearly 400 feet and then drops them down really quickly. You've seen these these rides in some of these amusement parks. And... Um, you know, they, they, I, I don't ride these rides. I have let my children ride on these rides, but this is a permanent fixture on this kind of strip outside of the Orlando conference center convention center. And I happen to be there at this, this iFly zone, right? It's like an indoor skydiving place, whatever. Um, but, but it happened on the day that I was there and I heard about it the next day. Um, you know, after the tragedy happened, what happened is this, this 14 year old boy, and this is what you heard right after the incident, 14 year old boy got on this ride. He went up the 400 feet, the ride dropped him down. And when it started to break about 20 feet from the ground, this young man popped out of the ride and fell to his death. And so there has been outcry, immediate outcry for this ride to shut down, immediate outcry across the country for this ride to be shut down across the country. There's been protests and and the ride in Orlando was shut down um, and it, it, it remains shut down. But what I think is interesting is the details that are coming out about this case so this young boy, he was 14 years old, and he was down there with his football team, and um, and not his immediate family, but some friends and some some extended family members, and they were going around this kind of amusement park, and this boy had been turned away from two other rides because he had exceeded the weight limit. This 14-year-old boy was six foot five and 340 pounds. This is a very, very tall and big 14-year-old. And he wasn't able to ride any of these rides. And finally, this this free fall drop ride, the, the guy let him on. The guy let him on without checking his weight. The weight limit for this ride is 287 pounds. There's a reason for the weight limit. When I was doing the indoor skydiving, the weight limit was 250 pounds. Guess what? They had a scale. Guess what? If you weighed more than 250 pounds, you weren't going on the ride. And so there clearly was some negligence in this case. But I just my heart breaks uh, for this young boy um, and, and the, the fact that it was likely a result of his weight. They're still doing an investigation. I know that the ride continued to be locked uh, when it came down, so it might have popped out, and he popped out, and then it became re-engaged. Um, but this is certainly, certainly a, a, a tragic, tragic situation. And, and I'm struck by the fact that across the country, there's calls for this ride to be shut down, and there are calls for this ride to be put out of commission. Um, when, when I believe that you need to have some personal responsibility um, and take into account that 
you know, you, you need to, to follow the directions. Not only that, but the people controlling the ride need to be very conscientious about it. You can't just say, okay, this is a 14-year-old boy. Yes, he checks the box. This was a this six five. This is bigger than an average man. This is a this is this is a, a huge tragedy, and I hate that it's a stain on uh, any of these amusement parks and any of these amusement rides. Um, but certainly a tragedy that we don't uh, want to see happen ever again um, in some of these amusement parks. So when we come back after the news. Um, we talk a lot about education on this program. It's something that's near and dear to my heart. And there's an interesting trend happening in the state of Wisconsin, homeschooling. So if you are a homeschool parent or you have made a decision to change the educational environment of your your child, um, you're going to want to listen when we come back after the news. I'm Tracy Johnson on WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, in for Jeff Wagner, here's Tracy Johnson. I believe that competition in education is a good thing. Welcome back to WTMJ. I am Tracy Johnson on this Friday afternoon. Education is the topic for this segment uh, and it's a top issue for many voters in this upcoming election um, having to do with multiple school board races across the state. Voters will be deciding on uh, their concern or voting on their concern about COVID mitigation, academic recovery, safety in their schools, uh, and CRT, frankly, and in curriculum, just in general. I have school-age children, third grader and a fifth grader, and I think about these things all the time, not just from an election standpoint, but education in general and the different types of education and it's no secret that education is the basis for our safety in communities the success of our future generations the value of the properties in our community the attractiveness of of our communities schools and education are very important and in the state of wisconsin we have almost 820,000 students who are in our public school system. And that number, that number is dropping. That number is dropping rapidly. In fact, uh, Wisconsin public schools uh, have 30,000 fewer students than they did before the pandemic. So just two years ago, the public schools in our state educated 30,000 more students. So where are these students going and why are they leaving? Is it because they're graduating and it's just a demographics and population shift? That's not what the other numbers show. Okay, so I'm going to start with that premise. This isn't about demographic shifts in these last two years. So where are these kids going? Well, at the same time that you saw enrollment at public schools decreasing, you saw enrollment at private and charter schools bursting. 
at the seams. You saw that enrollment increase tremendously, not just in the first year of the COVID shutdowns, but the second year and now the third year that we're entering into. But the surprising trend to me was the trend of homeschooling. And I, you know, I grew up in a community where you know, there was not a lot of, of, of homeschooling. I grew up in Jackson, West Bend area, and there weren't a lot of homes, homeschooled students. But during the pandemic, I actually had friends who talked about doing it, and they're continuing to do so. In fact, enrollment of homeschooled students in the last two years has increased by more than 10,000. That's a huge number. That is a huge number. So back before the pandemic, around 21,000 students were homeschooled, and now we're somewhere around 32,000 students. This is the most ever students that were homeschooled, according to data that stretches back to 1984. So at no other time did they have this many students. 3.25% of all students are being homeschooled. Now, most of these students uh, are at the elementary level. You've got a lot more in the elementary level just because of the support and the programs that are available for homeschooling at that age. Middle school, you start to get a little bit more complicated. Um, and then, of course, high school, it's, it's less common, but more common than it was before. And so I, I think it's it's fascinating to think about where these kids are going and why they're going where they are. If, you, if you're if you a homeschool parent, um, I'd, I'd love to hear from you at 855-616-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. You know, Is this the way to go? Is this going to be a, a wave of the future? Is this going to be a more viable option as we move forward for educating our children. And I think you have good historical data in terms of what are the outcomes of these students, right? You've, you've had homeschooling is not a new thing. It's just the increase in the number of homeschooled kids is what's surprising. And, you know, we've got a whole nother set of data that will be coming out in a couple of months when we start the new school year. I think this is, is shocking information and shocking data but i also think it represents an opportunity i'll talk about that when we come back but if you're a homeschool parent or you have great experience in the homeschooling uh, arena i want to hear from you 855-616-1620 on the acunet mortgage talk and text line your reaction my reaction when we come back on wtmj Welcome back on WTMJ. We're talking homeschooling, which this article has a headline. It actually kind of shocked me. It said homeschooling used to be a fringe thing, but enrollment grew by more than 10,000 students during the pandemic. Around 32,000 students in Wisconsin are now being homeschooled. This is not virtual schooled. This is homeschooled. And I actually never thought of it as a fringe thing. I always thought that people did it for religious reasons or because they didn't agree with the schools. But right now we're going to hear from Joe in South Milwaukee. You're on WTM. Oh, we lost Joe. 
<laughs> it's all right. He said he's been homeschooling for five years. Yeah, so we'll see if Joe calls back, but he mentioned that his son was having trouble in school, just falling behind. He was getting picked on, so they decided when he was in fifth grade to homeschool him, and he's now in 10th grade, and he said he's been doing great, and they're glad that they did it. Well, and, and you know, whether it's homeschooling or whether it's a, a charter school or moving to a private school or open enrollment, we need to have these options. And I, I say, you know, just like I give kudos to those who you know, run for office, those who take the time and make the sacrifice to homeschool their kids. I mean, this is a big deal. I mean, you think about 32,000 students are being homeschooled. And I have friends who, who participate in this. And, and often people will say, well, you know, what about the socialization? What about athletics? And they can participate in those things. And often there are these cohort measures um, where students can, you know, work together, learn from each other, benefit from the expertise and benefit from the, uh, you know, the knowledge and the, the, the diversity that uh, different families can offer um, in that environment. But, but I believe that competition that that competition in education is a good thing, and I, I think that it, it, that that seeing these numbers should be a wake up call for our public schools and for those who lead our public schools. Our you know our state superintendent of schools should be looking at these numbers. And, and speaking of numbers, there is an excellent resource that I need to plug for all of you who are listening who are interested in comparing DPI, Department of Public Instruction data, it's through the Wisconsin Institute of Law and Liberty. So I'm going to give you the URL. It's wil-law.org slash school dash scorecard slash. You can also look up Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty Wisconsin School Scorecard. And what this is, is an interactive dashboard where you can look and see the performance over uh, five years time of your school, look at enrollment data, you can look at the percentage uh, of spending, you can look at the breakout of average spending in terms of federal, state and local spending. Um, You can look at the percentage proficiency for math and language. Um, It's fascinating data and you can compare different districts. I looked in my my own public school district and then I looked at Milwaukee uh, public school district. Huge district um, and huge, huge opportunity uh, that I would uh, refer to. You know, but but schools are in a state of great transition now. I believe, you know, whether it's a public school or charter school or choice school. And I think that during COVID, parents were awakened to many details that they hadn't been paying attention to in terms of curriculum, in terms of transparency, and they're paying greater attention to those details. I think we are now looking at the modernization and technology uh, and we're also in a time of very strapped budgets when it comes to trying to meet the safety needs, the technology needs of, 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 of our students and of the schools and the teachers and the resources that are actually needed. So I will applaud any solution to try to make things better. 
I think too often we look at our education system as a as a one size fits all. And it's this huge bureaucratic monster that at the end of the day helps no one. Yes, you have success stories and you do have districts that are thriving, but they could be so much more successful if they thought creatively. And I get that certain districts and many districts are doing great things and thinking outside the box and being innovative. They, they don't have the issues of some of the, the, the bigger systems. And maybe those are the people that, that I'm really speaking to. These districts where you're seeing people leaving in droves. MPS lost 8.7% of its population last year. Where are these people going? I hope and pray that they are getting into some sort of charter or some sort of choice system, or maybe they're being homeschooled. But I will applaud any alternative that will look at creating a solution. You can't keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. I believe they call that insanity. And right now, I believe that that's what we have going on in some of these schools, some of these school systems, just broadly, we need to look at these solutions and we need to take these solutions seriously, whether it's charter, whether it's choice, whether it's breaking up some of these bigger systems into smaller systems. And these administrators cannot look at this as a threat. They need to look at this as the opportunity that it really is. I'm Tracy Johnson on WTMJ, filling in for Jeff Wagner. Welcome back on WTMJ. It's 226 on Friday afternoon. In for Jeff Wagner in the big chair today. Um, talking through the the issue of uh, alternative schooling uh, and education options for the state of Wisconsin in an environment where I think you had... I always look at the challenges as, as opportunities, whether it's the challenge of the pandemic giving you the option and the opportunity to see what kids are learning and then you can make other decisions um, or if it's the opportunity that our state of Wisconsin has as it relates to declining enrollment. And I started off discussing this huge increase in homeschool enrollment. It went from around 21,000 students to 30,000 students. And I was really hoping to hear from someone who homeschooled, but then I thought they're probably teaching <laughs> their kids. I'd be like if I asked for a public school teacher to call in right now. Um, I believe they're finishing out their day in school um, and then probably have a ton of, uh, a ton of work to do after the fact. Um, you know, and there's a distinct difference between the homeschooling and the virtual schooling. And everybody has their reasons. And everybody has different reasons uh, for, for wanting to make those choices. But I really, really think that our state and our our leaders, our education leaders, our elected leaders need to be in a position where they're advocating for those options. They're advocating for those various choices to educate our future and to educate the next generation. I, I heard some data that, that was seriously shocking to me, and it makes me think about these declining enrollment numbers. And that was in the, in the MPS school system. That any given day, their their absentee rate is could be forty percent. 
So where do these kids go? Who's watching these kids? Who's holding them accountable? And it's funny, I have this little, um, uh, on my Facebook Live, I ask for notifications to watch like certain school board meetings. I don't know if that's like a, like, is that a fun fact about me? (laughs) Is that I like to watch school board meetings just to hear the discussion and the dialogue and the things that they're talking about. And, you know, I know it's a tough job for school board, um, but I had tuned in uh, last month. They were contemplating this four day school week, which when I heard about it, I was like, whoa, where did this come from? And I think many of the people in Milwaukee who have students were, were also thinking the same thing. Like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, four, to four, to, four day school week? Like, wh- where is this coming from? Um, and so I tuned into this school board meeting, which was actually really, really interesting to hear the case. And without going into to all of the details, what I was impressed by is the amount of parental interaction and overwhelmingly what they were saying is that this cannot be one of the options that you're considering to help my students be more successful. And that's what everybody should be concerned with. That's what everyone should be focused on. It shouldn't be a four-day work, four-day school week, unless you have direct correlation to the success and what the anticipated success of a student might be moving towards and through that process. When we come back after the news, um, we're going to talk about uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas um, and the new calls for him to step down from the Supreme Court. Some of the comments that have been circulating from uh, from Nancy Pelosi and in Washington, D.C. And I want to have a discussion about his role, his family's role, and what is the responsibility and what should the accountability be? to those who surround some of these leaders, some of these elected officials, when it comes to position of power. We'll discuss when we come back. Traffic is by RoofMax. Visit SaveMyRoof.com. RoofMax, a revolutionary new treatment that can extend the life of your roof by 5, 10, or even 15 years. Get a free assessment today. Learn more at SaveMyRoof.com. And now from the Breaking News Center, here's Jane Matinair. Thank you, Tracy. The brother of Milwaukee's acting mayor, Cavalier Johnson, is now in police custody. The Wisconsin criminal database showing Alan Addison Jr. was arrested for first-degree reckless injury and use of a dangerous weapon. He was arrested Thursday. The warrant for his arrest issued in January. Addison accused of shooting a man in the head January 4th. The victim survived. A fiery explosion at a Russian fuel depot bringing accusations from Moscow that Ukraine attacked the facility. The Secretary of Ukraine's National Security Council denies any involvement. No independent confirmation of details about the incident that happened around dawn today in the Russian city of Belograd near the Ukrainian border. The House approving a bill decriminalizing marijuana and letting states set their own policies on pot. The bill does face an uphill climb in the Senate and is unlikely to become law. Friday's votes giving lawmakers the chance to show their views. 37 states and D.C. allow the medical use of cannabis. 18 states and the District of Columbia allow for recreational marijuana. Time for the WTMJ Drake and Associates market update. Mixed results at this hour. The Dow is up 37 at 34,715. The Nasdaq down 37 at 14,183. The S&P is down 4 at 4525. 
The WTMJ Pella, WI.com Time Saver Traffic, still that disabled vehicle. Southbound 43, about two miles past Mequon Road. The left lane there is blocked, and you can expect those slowdowns as you head into town from uh, southbound 43. Expect those slowdowns as you approach Glen Oaks Lane. Rest of the system looks good. 94 outbound. The Marquette to the Zoo, seven minutes. The Zoo to Highway 1610. 41, 45 south from Highway Q to the Zoo. Smooth, 14-minute ride. Good Hope Road to the Zoo, 10 minutes. 43 north, Marquette to Good Hope. Eight minutes, 94 southbound Marquette to Layton Avenue, seven-minute ride. The WTMJ five-day forecast, sunny today with a high 44. Clouds move in tonight down to 32. Tomorrow, snow turning over to rain, maybe an inch or two accumulation, especially to our north. High tomorrow, 38. Sunshine Sunday, a wintry mixture moving in Sunday evening, high 45. Monday, rain and snow early, otherwise clouds with a high 48. Tuesday, cloudy, a chance of rain and a high 46. In Cedarburg, 36. St. Francis, 40. In Milwaukee, we're at 40 degrees. I'm Jane Matnair, siding on Limited WTMJ News Time 233. Can we just leave Clarence Thomas alone? Can we just leave Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas alone? There are there continues to be calls from AOC, from others, for him to resign. And step down. He has come under fire over the last uh, few days and weeks because his wife, it was revealed, was said to have sent text messages to a Trump advisor during kind of some of the, the questions around the election. He was, she was urging Mike Mulvaney to overturn the election. So this is the wife of a Supreme Court justice, a sitting Supreme Court justice, who was taking this action. So as I mentioned, uh, AOC and other Democrats are now calling for Thomas to step down. And I think it was kind of funny listening to some of the comments from from Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who said, I, I wouldn't have even wanted him confirmed in the first place. Just I, I don't know. So this whole thing really has caught my my attention as somewhat insane and extremely ridiculous, uh, but not out of character uh, for Justice Thomas. Uh, many people have long memories and recall that Justice Thomas was asked to step down following a homegrown investigation around allegations of harassment of Anita Hill, um, a woman who had clerked with him. So these these calls for Thomas to step down, though, are based not on his actions, but rather the actions of his spouse. And it gets me scratching my head about these leaders. And, and if these leaders are held to the standards and thought to, to believe exactly what their family members think and believe, is this the standard that we are holding these leaders to. Was there any sort of evidence or any sort of suggestion that Justice Clarence Thomas asked his wife to send these text messages? And by extension, we have a lot of leaders, elected, appointed, hired, who have family members who do questionable things. We just had breaking news on this station about... Acting Mayor Cavalier Johnson's brother, 
being in custody. Does that mean that that the, the mayor of Milwaukee has to step down and we should be calling for him to resign? I don't know. This, 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 these are arguments that are being made. Back to Clarence Thomas. Do we not trust a sitting justice of the Supreme Court who is fairly appointed and confirmed and withstood and withstands attack after attack after attack and attempt to take him off his seat? Or do we turn the page and should we be in a new day when these actions and tweets and emails of everyone around us is considered in our ability to do our job? What is the standard here? And, and are we going to apply this universally across the board, regardless of our political stripes? Because I think the, the pattern here is we see some hints of political interference. You think of, of our president and the controversies surrounding his son. If anything comes of this, does this mean that he should resign? I, really? Is this, is this the standard that we're setting here? And where, where do we draw the line? Should these appointed elected officials be held to a different standard? Because my spouse, because my mother, because my brother did something or said something or tweeted something that you didn't like or you didn't agree with, does that mean that I have to pay the consequences? And do you have the choice to say, well, by marriage, because you chose that person and you probably talked to them and like, what's our standard here? 855-616-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this going to go away or is this going to build momentum? And is this going to gain political steam? Or is this just one more big distraction we have a country to run here we've got a lot of important issues to deal with in the united states of america what is the standard here 855-616-1620 on the acunet mortgage talk and text line your reaction your comments when we come back i'm tracy johnson on wtmj 244 on wtmj Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas uh, is is facing heat once again for the actions of his wife. This Supreme Court justice is no stranger to uh, critics. He was asked to step down uh, some years ago when there were allegations of harassment from uh, one of his staffers, one of his employees. You know, he has always been a, a, a lightning rod uh, in our country as a Supreme Court justice. And now it is revealed that his wife sent 29, I have some more details, 29 text messages um, to a staffer surrounding uh, Donald Trump regarding the election. And we have a number of callers. When I asked the question, should he be held accountable for his wife's actions? Mike in Illinois, you're in a WTMJ. Good afternoon, Tracy. How are you? Good. What do you think? Yeah, I don't think he should be held accountable. I don't think any office holder should be accountable unless, there, unless there's a conflict of interest and affects the int- integrity of the office. Um, certainly you could look at this and say, yeah, it could be a conflict of interest if he's 
ruling on something about Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very hard to control. Um, you know, what happened with um, the Cuomos? I mean, his brother uh, interfered with a, uh, a case that was going on and, you know, tried to help him out. Um, that would be a conflict of interest. That would, you know, affect the integrity of the office. Um, I guess it's going to see how this plays out with uh, Clarence Thomas mm-hmm. and his wife. Um, I can't believe that he wouldn't be aware that she was doing that. So um, I guess I, you need more information to come out. But, um, yeah, as long as it doesn't affect the integrity of the office, or there's not a conflict of interest, I don't think you control, you can control family members. M- Mike, thanks for the call. Um, Ed, in Wauwatosa, you're on WTMJ. Does should he be held accountable for his wife's text messages? Not per se for the account for the text messages. I agree with the previous caller. He doesn't need to resign. I don't know of any grown, grown up, even on the Democratic side, that really says he should resign. That many, however, have said that he does need to recuse himself from any case that hey, there's a conflict of interest, uh, particularly where his wife has publicly stated this position. I believe... He has already recused himself from other cases. I believe one of his uh, uh, sons was involved in the case and he recused himself from that one. Showed good judgment there. He should continue to do that. Thank you, Ed. In Wauwatosa, I, th- I think what's interesting about what, what Ed says is, you know, he doesn't have to resign, but possibly recuse himself. Now, I wonder if, I wonder if it hadn't been exposed that his wife was in text message conversation because it, it, it's well known that his wife is is an activist and was a, an, a huge Trump supporter. So I wonder if it wasn't exposed, you know, how the country might feel after the fact. Gianni, you're on WTMJ from Monticello. Yes, that's yeah, great, great job today. Listen, um, a recusal. Um, um, of, of a position um, to, to have a judgment on a case is one thing, but to step down from your job or be forced out of your job because it's something your spouse says, I think is ridiculous. Um, yes, recruitment, if, if that were to come up, but my goodness, um, if, if your husband or my wife said something, um, that's their opinion. They have a, a right to do it. I, I, would, I don't think it's particularly good judgment. And I, I, I'm sure, you know, he'd love to be a fly on the wall at their dinner table. But to step down, to give up his career a, a, as the Supreme Court justice, uh, that's ridiculous, Nancy. Yeah, G- I agree. Gianni, is my question, though, and, and this is where we have to kind of, I don't know if we're ever going to find out more information. What if at the end of the day, because a justice, even though they are impartial and they have to look at all of these things with, you know, blind blindness of justice. What if in his heart of hearts, he disagreed with his wife? Why should he have to recuse himself if he was not involved? What I mean, I don't know the text messages that my husband well, would send. Or is it just about preserving the integrity of the office or of the position, I should say? I, 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 yeah, I, I mean, I, to, to avoid further controversy, um, I think, you know, he, he, that's probably, you know, probably the the best use of um, of, his, of, of judgment. Um, but, you know, it's, that's not like stepping down. Right. And if he has to recruit himself, maybe that maybe that's a lesson to his wife that, that maybe she should you know stay out of this area. Um, when your husband is a Supreme Court justice, it, it just seems like bad judgment. So live and learn uh, for the, you know, the Thomas family. Gianni, Gianni, thank you so much for the call. And and I liked when he said, 
um, let's avoid future controversy because because I believe that regardless of what Justice Clarence Thomas does, he is always going to be under the microscope of controversy. His appointment was controversial. There's so much controversy surrounding him, and, and, and I, I don't ever foresee it letting up. I actually think that if he recuses himself, it will be seen as a bargaining chip and a point of weakness. Tracy, you're married. I am. I'm married. Mm-hmm. If my wife was doing this, considering the job Clarence Thomas has, let's say <laughs> I have that job, I would be furious. I'd be saying, honey, you are making my job more difficult. Right. I'm a Supreme Court justice. Stop doing this. <laughs> So I like like Gianni said, I can't imagine what their dinner table is like right now because Clarence Thomas has to be upset with her. Yeah, this is I I, I mean, I don't think it's unprecedented. I think it's actually amplified by the politicization of all of this. Uh, And I think there's, you know, when we talk about that recusal, which I actually think will eventually happen there's also conversation about a code of ethics i'm actually really surprised that there isn't an actual code of ethics we just assume that supreme court justices are i want to say infallible or that they're perfect at least if you've watched the past several confirmations the expectation is that these people have never had a speeding ticket or they've never done anything to regret in their entire, entire life. But to bring it full circle, I think it's unfair to hold this man or any elected, appointed official or leader accountable for the actions of their family members. And we have to get over it. In this world of social media, I know it's easy to amplify. I know it's easy to uh, take to the next level. But I think it's disingenuous to the entire system. And it's disingenuous to the integrity of our United States of America. I'm Tracy Johnson, back after the break to wrap up the show. Welcome back on WTMJ. The last segment of the program before we hand it over to Brewers, Brewers Baseball, Brewers and Cubs coming up this afternoon. So my favorite season of the year, and I call it a season, I use that term loosely, is Summerfest. Summerfest season is coming up and we we saw the, the headliners list announced. I mean, some of these headliners, <laughs> some of these big names are actually playing on the secondary stages like third eye blind steve miller band um it's going to be a a fantastic year it's always a a fantastic lineup and they're going to stick with the three weekends right through june like june and july number of weekends so you're not going to be able to go during the week which i know has been discussed at length on this program i love going during the week kind of knock off with the staff and we just go down and have a couple of sodas <laughs> uh down at the Summerfest grounds um so so it, it's coming up this this in just a few months i actually have the countdown clock going uh co- going on at my house but earlier this week there was a lawsuit filed uh against Summerfest the Summerfest organizer Milwaukee World Festival and it was contesting the Summerfest Milwaukee World Festivals ability to operate as a nonprofit organization. They were suggesting that it was operating more like a corporate entity. 
Summerfest is is a, is a, a business, right? I mean, it, it operates like a business, but its tax status is a 501c3. It suggests that it exists uh, for, obviously it's the world's largest music festival, but bringing the music and bringing the entertainment to the city of Milwaukee and the residents of Milwaukee, this is an economic engine, $200 million of economic impact uh, that's spun off from Summerfest. But I found it interesting, and I actually dug a little deeper uh, just in the merits of this lawsuit, because it might gain some momentum i'm suspecting that it was launched mm, by maybe a promoter or someone here in the city who doesn't care for um care for Summerfest. there's a great deal of competition obviously a lot of collaboration but competition uh this lawsuit will have um very little impact but for such a huge organization you know operating like a, a non-profit organization um i thought was interesting but you know, they're mission driven. They're bringing music to our city. They're having such huge economic impact. Um, this lawsuit, I don't think, is going to have any merit. I really appreciate everyone who's been with us today. Thanks for all of your smart texts, all your calls, all of your interaction. Great to be with you. I am Tracy Johnson, sitting in for Jeff Wagner. And right now, we're going to hand it over to Brewers and Cubs Baseball. Go, Brewers.